we left off last week. So this is our sermon, Cosmic Christ and the Happy Family, Part 2. Cosmic Christ and the Happy Family, Part 2. Turn with me, please, to Paul's letter to the Colossians, the third chapter, verses 18 to 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Last week we talked about from the Colossian hymn in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, what I've called the cosmic Christ. How Jesus alone was able to redeem the cosmos to himself and how that's, that's going on right now. We look at Jesus as the firstborn over all creation and we looked at that title firstborn with respect to uh, its Passover and Exodus uh, initial setting. Where the firstborn was to be taken from each family, but a lamb was offered in place of the firstborn. And so we have Paschal, a Passover, and rich New Exodus meaning in here. Uh, for the original audience then, then for those who were coming back from exile, after both Jerusalem and the uh, northern kingdom had fallen, and the exiles were being brought back in, and of course bringing it right into the new covenant with our exodus, our new exodus out of sin and into Christ. So that Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, who has reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, has an impact on what we're going to look at today. What comes immediately from that, part two, is the happy family. Okay? The happy family. We want to understand first that God is, in God, relational. God is a relational being in his essence. Okay? God is a relational being. And so, to create in his image is to create image bearers that are relational. And these uh, relationships are born out first and foremost in Genesis in male and female roles, specifically in the marriage that God arranged in that time. Relationship is patterned after God, who again is relational. We see some subordination between father and son. We see sending of the one and the other. We see the spirit being sent. We see what's going on. The image of God, then, is in each person, but more so, it's corporate. The image of God is in each person. We're all created in the image of God, but we need to see the image of God as a communal thing. Relationship is the image-bearing body. The image of God is born out in relationships, because if God, again, created in His image, and God is, in all eternity, a relational being, Father, Son, and Spirit, then we would expect that image would be born out as well, in our relationships. It's in our relationships, in our male and our femaleness, in relationship, and as we'll see particularly in here, those first relationships, which is the family. Family relationships are first formed way back in Genesis. And we saw how that happened in Genesis, right? We see that Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And that Eve was taken from Adam. Now, we know the story of that. Typically, as the Scriptures say, God put Adam into a deep sleep and took a rib and from that rib built a woman. And so the, the picture there is from the side of him. There's, this is quite interesting. There is permissible within the semantic range of the ancient Hebrew language and the understanding available to the original audience. 
that it's quite possible also that that deep sleep was almost a state of trance that God put Adam in where he could then give him a vision of the woman being taken from his side. So that Adam saw in a vision, in a sense, this woman being taken from his side. And so when, after Adam had seen all the animals and named them, the woman was brought to him, he was able to say, Ah, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is, this is what was missing. And, and again, if the sort of, if the vision thing holds, if that does maintain, if that does obtain through the potentials that we have in the language to look at that, then it would be, this is what I was being shown. And either understanding, of course, is okay. We used to be, I don't know if they say this, but husbands used to refer to their wives as their better half. Right? Or people would say, how's your better half? Funny, they never say that about the husband, right? We, we never get the better half designation, but, or my other half. And that's more than just biology. Okay? The one flesh union is not just a biological union. It's something much more profound than that. It is the male-femaleness, which shows the image of God. And in that, man is the head. Man is head. You know, it's interesting that God had uh, Adam name the creature that came to him. And that's an authoritative function. That's a function of authority, to be able to name things in the Old Testament thought. And likewise, just as he called them something, God brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. It also says two verses later that he called the woman Eve. So we see that we have some early authority being established right there in terms of headship. Adam is the head of the family. And that obtains all the way throughout time and now as well. We see in Titus, we see in other places that the husband, if he's going to be an elder, if a man is going to be an elder and he has a family, he's got to manage that family well. There's an expectation there that his leadership, the leadership that he's going to bring to the Lord's flock is well established and maintained. And then something tragic happened. Then we have the fall of the family. So what happened in the garden? Because in the garden, the domain of darkness that we talked about having been delivered from last week, that domain of darkness was established. That was set up. And there, Adam, in a sense, let Eve take a lead. When she took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which she wasn't supposed to, the Scripture says she took and ate it, and her husband was with her. What was he doing? And then the eyes, they both partook, and then the eyes opened. The eyes of both of them were opened. Now, it's interesting that Eve took partook of it, and her eyes weren't opened right away. It was only when Adam then took of it that the relationship fell apart. There was a relational failure there. And so we see this today as well. When families fail, the evidence of ruin that's out there after fathers are out of the family. So we continue to see the effects of this, the consequences of the fall. And the immediate, the consequences for the woman. So the Lord said to her, in, in childbearing, you're going to have a, it, it's going to be bad. Some of the old uh, translations just say conception, but it, it's really, uh, it, it's the whole thing. It's from conception to birth. And there's going to be anxiety about having children. And, and that's why I think so many women in the Old Testament that were barren, it was such a terrible thing. It was part of this stigma that came attached to the whole process of childbearing as a result of the fall back in the garden. So, anxiety about having children and uh, how that affects a woman's entire being and then the medical things and the biological processes that they go through and then, of course, most often, great pain that takes place in giving birth. And it's interesting that because uh, child-rearing is so innate to her nature, 
A woman is going to be dependent upon man. And she's going to... So it's possible again here, we'll talk about both, but the desire that she'll have for her husband is a desire that she has because she is so dependent on him to satisfy that maternal instinct. This is the way God made them. And he in turn, she, and he says, but he will rule over you, he'll dominate you. He turns that innate need she has for him into domination. That's, that's again part of the consequence. So part of her consequence is that he's going to abuse his position. Or she will attempt to dominate him, sort of as the other understanding. Uh, her, her innate need for him creates resentment and frustration. Her innate need creates resentment and frustration. She resents her status. And as man mistreats her, why wouldn't she resent that? As we again see over the course of time. And it seems very likely that rather than God saying, as, as a result of your fall, I'm going to turn your desire against your husband, I think that sort of the natural consequence is the thing that God had set up, that she would sort of need the husband and be dependent upon him in that way, would become a source of frustration for her, rather than God implanting in her some sinful desire. Which, but I think either way it's okay. Uh, what, what we're going to see happen is, uh, and we see it in our culture today, the full carrying out of this, this thing we call misandry, where, where men are just, in so many ways, just dismissed. Okay? Uh, just quoting from a, from a website here. Since first flickering into people's homes some 60 years ago, television has been rife with dumb dads and adolescent spouses. From Ralph Cramden and Fred Flintstone through Tim Taylor... Ray Romano and Homer Simpson, the prevailing concept is one of a bumbling, slavish, spoiled little man. Child who, I'm sorry, spoiled little man child who somehow, just by the skin of his teeth, avoids both divorce and by the end of each episode. And commercials only up the ante, churning out insane images of men as domestically inept, sports and beer obsessed Neanderthals. That's a direct result of the fall. And then Adam's, uh, the consequence to Adam is Adam's job of providing for his family, of being the lead in his family, that's going to be a really frustrated task. The thorns and the thistles which are going to grow up and the briars and all that and bringing forth bread by the sweat of his brow. He too is going to have great anxiety and distress and stress over his main family function. What was supposed to come easily for him no longer comes easily. And so he brings that, today he, he brings that trouble home with him. When he comes home and he, he brings that work situation into the door with him at times. Or he abandons family altogether because providing and leading is so difficult because the fall deprives him of the power to do these things without fear and trepidation and trouble and difficulty. And we look at the impacts of fatherlessness on our culture are horrific. And oppression of women is the abandonment of the male-female relationship. And look at what that has borne out over the ages. So we see just how ugly this is. Men and women over the years, this, this broken relationship has endured and gotten worse and worse. And this is family in the domain of darkness. The image of God, male and female relationship, falls. And therefore, culture falls. Right? I was reminded recently of the 1986, I think, Disaster of the Space Shuttle Challenger. That was the space shuttle that went up with the school teacher, the public school teacher, and it was, a, it was a pretty big deal. Well, the rubber seals on the booster rockets failed because of unusually cold weather. So 73 seconds into the air, the whole thing fell apart, and they all died. 
See, male-female roles in relationships are the rubber sails on culture's booster rockets, if you will. The whole thing back with Adam and Eve, the thing never got far enough off the ground. It exploded. And the result was the whole family thing was cursed, in a sense. Although I, I'm careful that Scripture does say that God cursed the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. And he said, cursed the, to the serpent. But he never says to Adam and Eve, you are cursed. But I guess we don't have to mince words too much. Pretty ugly. So now we have, in Christ, the family to be redeemed. It would make great sense that the family should be redeemed because, again, therein we see the image of God, the image of God born out in male-female roles and relationships. Male-female marriage is the supreme model of what image of God is supposed to be. It should shape the rest of culture so that those roles are in place. Because it's the archetypal relationship. It's that relationship which all others should sort of copy or take knowledge from. And then, of course, there's the offspring of that marital relationship. And there's culture. And we take a look here. You know, what precedes this, okay, what precedes 3.18, of course, is 3.17. Whatever you do in the word word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, that's possible. 317 is possible because of what we saw in 113 to 20. And 318 to 21 is the practice of 317 in the family. Okay? So, so 115 to 20, the cosmic conquering, reigning, firstborn over all creation, reconciling all things to himself, making peace through the blood of himself. Jesus is what gives us the ability to do all things to the glory of God and Verse 3.17 and then in 3.18 to 21, we see what that looks like in the family. And again, the primacy of the importance for that healthy thing in the culture. And so it begins, wives, submit to your husbands. Be subject to them. What does that mean, to submit and be subject? To respond and relate to in a manner that acknowledges that you are under the leadership or headship of another. This is the way I sort of describe that. I hope that helps. To respond and relate to in a manner that acknowledges that you are under the leadership or headship of another. And that is always the way Paul uses that word in the 13 or so places that we see in the Pauline epistles. He always uses it that way. It turns out the rest of Scripture does in the New Testament as well. But it's important to look at the way Paul always uses a word. And here's some examples of that. Romans 13.1 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Corinthians 15.27 For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Titus 2.9 Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They have to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Perhaps some synonyms in English for us to help. Acknowledge. Defer. Bend, succumb, yield, be submissive, throw in the towel. I love that one. Throw in the towel. What being subjective doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're his domestic servant. It doesn't mean that you don't have say in your relationship and decision making. Husbands, she ought to be your first counselor. In many, if not all cases, I'll leave it to you all to battle out the exceptions. 
She is your other half. There is no you without her. She has insight. She has perspective that you can't possibly have. She's wives are better at some things than us. <laughs> wives are better at some things than us. They just are. It doesn't mean that you're wrong and he's right. It says, as is fitting in the Lord. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In a manner consistent with your redeemed mind. You are born again. Sarah called Abraham Lord, Peter says. Now, we only see Sarah call Abraham Lord in one place. This is very important, I think. This is Genesis 18, 12. She says that when she's laughing and speaking to herself in the tent because she has overheard the Lord speaking to Abraham, saying that you're going to have a child, etc. And she's heard chuckling. She says to herself, she says this to herself now, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You see, that's how she thought of him. She doesn't say it in a way where other people are hearing it, where she's sucking up to somebody or to her husband. She says it in a time when she thinks she's alone and thereby revealing what's really going on in her innermost heart. She refers to him as Lord. I'm not encouraging that. Um, Peter says, you are Sarah's daughters if you do likewise. It means that you support your husband's decision-making process. It means that you encourage him. It means that you respect him. It means that you counsel him. It means that you speak well of him when you speak with other women. Proverbs 12.4 An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. So, there's that. You see an ad that disparages men and you turn to him and you say, Honey, I don't think of you that way. And I never will. You pray for him and his role as leader. As your head. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Pray to the one who knows best how to lead, who is uniquely qualified to lead, that your husband would lead very well in a way that makes you love him and the Lord even more. And in those rare instances where you disagree, these two have been married for a week, they yet to have their first fight. I kind of would like to be there for that, but... In those rare instances when you disagree, yield, wife. Yield to your husband. Not sinfully, right? Duh. I feel like we always have to say these duh things. Well, does that mean I have to follow him in sin? I don't even have to say that. But don't keep at him. Don't nag and don't quarrel. Proverbs 27:15, the Christian Standard Bible, an endless dripping on a rainy day and a nagging wife are alike. 
It means you trust the Lord enough to respond with grace to the one who has put over you the one in leadership. It means you trust the Lord. There was a time when I was struggling with great anxiety over something. And I was feeling weak, and that weakness was showing. I mean, it was showing to my wife and to my kids. And Kim picked up on that. And she just said to me, lovingly and gently, she says, Aurora and I need you to be strong in this. Aurora and I need you to be strong. It wasn't mocking. It wasn't disgust over my weakness. It was empowering because it was reality acknowledging. She was acknowledging reality. She was saying, we need you to be strong in this. Husbands, love your wives. You need to 1 Corinthians 13 them. (laughs) Husbands, 1 1 Corinthians 13 your wives. Be patient and kind with them. Don't be dismissive of them in the quest to have your own way. She is not the first obstacle in your personal path to sovereignty. The scripture says here, don't be irritable or resentful. Don't be embittered towards them. Isn't that interesting? Especially given the setting. I mean, (laughs) in ancient Colossae, in ancient Rome, I mean, the, the man was everything in the family. He could be overruling, he could be abusive, he could be whatever. Women did not have good status. And yet, here's the man being told, don't become embittered towards your wife. Because that constitutes an entire change in the way he thinks about his marriage. Right? So, don't be embittered. This is sort of the male version of nagging. And men, why might we get this way? And I think, I don't think I'm all that unique in a whole lot of ways. Men can at times get so caught up in their present thought that we get annoyed and an intrusion to that thought process. Understand this a little bit, women, about men. We can be trying to figure something out or solve something in our head, and you don't even see it going on because we're doing it behind the scenes while we're doing something else. And then something else happens, or your wife gives you what would otherwise be good input, but it comes across to you as, as interruption or intrusion or something. Or like, you know, whoa, hey, 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 back up, man. Put the brake on. See, we forget we have another half. We do. We forget we have another half. And men can resent that they actually have to consider that they have another half. That's, that's, that's the fallen part sort of, of, of our nature a little bit. Bear their burdens. Rejoice in the truth of who they are. Believe the best about them rather than assuming the worst. What you might call nagging may just be an attempt to persuade. You need to learn the difference. Hope the best for her. Endure. Does she struggle with something you would like to see improve? Endure. Don't love the woman you think she should be. Love the one you're with. Love who she is. Not who you want her to be. Perhaps, man, we need a standard. Well, we get one. We get one in Scripture, don't we? Jesus, as Christ loved the church, He gave Himself up for her. He sacrificed for our well-being. Why did He do this? Well, the text says in Ephesians, to present the church to Himself with all splendor, holy, and without blemish. Jesus 
self-giving, makes the church all that God intends it to be, and there can be no beautiful church without the Jesus self-giving. Husbands, likewise, our sacrifice, our giving of ourselves for our wife is critical to their fulfillment as wives. So that they can be all God intended the woman to be. Because our sacrifice shows them love, and love promotes their spiritual prosperity and their fulfillment. So if we're to model Christ, it's going to look like what Christ did for the church. Self-sacrificing. Maybe even doing things you wouldn't typically normally like to do. Maybe, it, you know, I, I, I'm not going to name any particular thing because there's so many things, and if I leave one out, you think you're doing all right. And maybe you are. I pray that we all are. But I do know this. We always have to think because we are goal-driven. We are, man, we, are, we can be gung-ho, can't we? Man, we can be so ready to go and do. And we have to stop and we have to pause and we have to think. This is not an interruption. This is your family. Love your wives, Paul says, just in case they haven't gotten it yet, as your own bodies. Love your wife as your own body, as yourselves. Well, we don't neglect our bodies. We nourish them. And that's how close the connection is, right? She's the other half. Again, pitching your eyes, Eve being sort of taken from Adam. Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ does the church. You don't neglect your own body. She is your flesh. You are one flesh. Men, how do we treat our bodies? I just wrapped up 24 weeks, I'm sorry, 24 episodes, events, appointments of physical therapy. I was just having problems all around my pelvic region. All right, lower lumbar, pelvic, some hip, it was just a mess there. 24 weeks of physical therapy so I can improve it and make it function so it doesn't have pain so I can do the things I need to do. God says, great, now do that with your wife. Spiritual, emotional therapy, Pat, with your wife. Do that. It's ongoing. You're always in that therapy with your wife. And it, it, we have to get before God and ask Him things and observe things and look at things and notice things. And my goodness, years can go by and then you'll notice something. How did I neglect that for so long? It does happen. It'll show up. Just like I didn't have good form and whatever it was that I was doing when I was running or I was just pounding the pavement too hard or whatever, something went wrong. And that had to be adjusted. We have a few men. I don't know if they're with us today. There's a few out there, actually. A few ripped men here in the body. We have a few men that are ripped you know what I mean by ripped, right? You like your body. You invest in it. You spend time on it. Right? You, 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 you spend time in front of the mirror. You do. You like to maximize the biceps. You want to make sure they're symmetrical, you know? And you want to... You, want to, you, you like what you see. You want your pecs, you know, and your glutes, everything. You know what you want? You're looking at that, you know? Women, guys do it too. And you like what you see. And you wear clothes to show it off a little bit. 
Well, we need to be that way with our wives. Let public and private conducts towards your wives be the clothing that shows off how wonderful they are to you. Is your wife ripped? Show it off. And the way you treat her, pray for her, think about her. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Consider her whole personality and her soul. There has to be this active thought about the development of the wife and her life and this amazing relationship that God himself has established. And so Peter says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Dwell with them in an understanding way. Know them. Our relationship with God is the same way. Jesus refers to eternal life as knowing God the Father and Jesus whom he has sent. So relationship is, is inextricably bound to knowing. And knowing means spending time and observing. And then protect them, men. Protect your wives, physically of course, right? Although it's interesting, John Piper made a good point one time. I was reading a book of his. I think it's called This Momentary Marriage. Which is weird because the only thing I could think of when he said that was this momentary light affliction. And I was like, I don't think John meant that. <laughs> but Piper says in his book, he says, you know what? She may have a black belt in the martial arts, and you don't. But if you hear an intruder in the house, you need to be the first one to the door. And if it means you take a kick to the solar plexus that you don't know how to defend, then so be it. I like that. But be concerned that she feels safe and secure. And, 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 and has in, in your home is secure and safe. Right? Her spirit and emotions. You know, is, is she timid or anxious at times or nervous? Protect her from those things that may tend to provoke those things. Many years ago, my wife, who's an incredibly hard worker, was working for this woman in uh, the wedding planning industry. And this woman was a force to be reckoned with. She was nasty, scornful, condescending, and those are her good qualities. And it got to the point where Kim just had to leave because it just made sense to. And so she gave a two-week notice on a Saturday. Monday morning on my way home, I'm sorry, Monday after, that Monday afternoon on my way home from work, I called up that woman. I said, my wife gave her two-week notice. I want you to know that she's not coming in Monday and you won't see her again. Because you mistreated her and you were nasty towards her and actions have consequences and you don't get to treat people that way. So you won't be seeing her again. So, again, just sort of a little example of just saying this is what I see can affect my wife. How can I or can I do anything about it? Joseph, after seeing Mary pregnant, the scripture says, I, never, I saw this for the first time the other day. She, Mary was showing, right? It, people were aware that she was pregnant. Her husband became aware by her sh- showing. And what does Joseph do? And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. She could have been potentially stoned to death. Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly rather than expose her shame. Wow. Again, Jones says, do everything you can to safeguard her from the weaknesses and the infirmities and the frailties. She is, as Peter said, the weaker vessel. Final word to men. This is from a secular song, but I like the lyrics. It's from Billy Joel's Tell Her About It. Tell her about it. 
Let her know how much you care. When she can't be with you, tell her you wish you were there. Tell her about it every day before you leave. Pay her some attention. Give her something to believe. Because now and then she'll get to worrying just because you haven't spoken for so long. Though you may not have done anything, will that be a consolation when she's gone? Listen, boy, it's good information from a man who's made mistakes. Just a word or two that she gets from you could be the difference that it makes. She's a trusting soul. She put her trust in you. But a girl like that won't tell you what you should do. Tell her about it. Tell her everything you feel. Give her every reason to accept that you are for real. Amen. Now, some in here may be unequally yoked. Okay, so you have a spouse that is not a believer. And so you might be asking yourselves, how do I... You just continue to be the person in here that you see. And you have an extra burden on that. Because... In that male-female union where God is manifesting his image, you're up against it. You're up against it. Um, And, and you know, I don't know everybody in here, but uh, man, if you're with a wife and you're with her today and she's in Christ, her love for you, which comes from her love for Christ who loves her, is such that she just wants so much for you to know Christ. Because she wants you to know love that she can't give you. She can't give you the kind of life Christ can. She's going to try. She's going to let you, Christ love you through her. Same thing with, with uh, you know, the other way around. Right? And so, obviously, you don't follow him into sin. Again, don't need to mention those duh things, right? But both Paul and Peter mentioned that the wives, the, the, unbelieving, uh, the believing spouse is in a unique position to minister grace and love to the unbelieving spouse. And they even say... In so many words, the Lord may use your character. They may use you. The Lord may use you to bring your husband and your wife to faith. So, corny as it sounds, so hang in there. And as single people, again, as marriage goes, so goes the culture. This should help you know how to choose a mate. This will help you to know what you're getting into, so to speak, in marriage. That it's much bigger than just saying, oh, you know, whatever things the secular culture may say about marriage, or for whatever reasons the culture avoids marriage, this will help you to plan for marriage and understand what marriage is, and also to choose a mate. Okay? What you are doing here is bearing the image of God in your, in your marriage, bringing the whole male-female thing to light for the entire culture to see. And this will help you to pray for marriages. Okay? You are not less because you are not married. Different people in different situations. There is no sort of one superior position. You're not less. Okay, children. Children, obey your parents. That sounds so easy, right? Your parents will try to tell you what TV shows you should watch. Your parents may want to follow your social media. Don't resist. Every parent has a right to take their child's social media, regardless of what the government says. Look at their Facebook, look at their Twitter, look at everything they're doing socially. Because you are under the headship of your home, particularly under your father. So, the law may grant you some protection to that, and I don't know exactly what that is. But don't resist your parents' right, if they feel that you're in trouble or in danger, to take a look at that. And protect you. Because in your mind, you're always thinking that your parents want to keep something away from you. They don't want to give you something. They want to deprive you of something. That's not our goal. Trust me. 
We want to give you more than we do in many cases, but we know that we've got to be careful in doing that. We, 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 gotta, we, we try to understand and learn from our Lord Jesus how to love you the right way. We want to love you the right way. So there's some things you just don't understand. Suppose you never knew what a bee's nest was, and you saw this big gray paper thing. And your parent says to you, don't play with that. But it's really cool. And this thing's flying in and out of there. And so you go in there and grab that thing. And you get stung in your face and your hands and your arms. Okay? The same goes for don't eat this or don't eat that or I don't want you to stay up too late. You don't understand why your parents are doing this. They're protecting you from the bee stings in a sense. And teaching you and training you how to live and how to love. Doing your chores, doing your homework, all that stuff. Obey your parents in all things. These things, it says, please the Lord. Obey your parents because this pleases the Lord. Now, I could ask any child here, I think, or any, what's the first thing you're going to do when you see Jesus? And I would hope the response would be, hug him. I'm going to hug him. When you obey your parents, it's like hugging Jesus. Okay? He could come back today. But he isn't physically here right now. But if he was physically here, you'd hug him. But if you like the idea of hugging Jesus, then obey your parents. Because that's a way of hugging Jesus. And if you've been disobedient, you need to ask for their forgiveness. You need to tell them they're sorry. You need to ask Jesus to forgive too. And you need to ask Jesus to change the way you think and the way you feel so that you can please them and him more. Fathers, do not provoke your children. I'm going to share with you from the Amplified Bible. Fathers, do not provoke or irritate or exasperate your children with demands that are trivial or unreasonable or humiliating or abusive, nor by favoritism or indifference. Treat them tenderly with loving kindness so they will not lose heart and become, dis- and become discouraged or unmotivated with their spirits broken. I like that amplification. To avoid doing this, we have to know them. And to know them, we have to spend time with them. And we have to learn, where are they tender? What motivates them? What encourages them? What makes them feel important? What makes them laugh? Looking at those terms from the Amplified Bible Translation a little bit. Don't be trivial. Don't make trivial or unreasonable demands. So you have to know their strengths and weaknesses and not demand beyond that. It's a different thing than getting them to go a little further and stretch them. I'm not talking about that. But don't demand things from them that they cannot do. And don't nitpick. So they bring home a report card with two A's, two B's, and one C. Where's your laser vision at that point? Man, you better talk up those A's and B's first. How do you react? And don't do humiliating things. Don't say stupid things. You swing that axe like a girl. You swing that bat like a girl. That does terrible damage. Oh, that does terrible damage to a, to a young guy. So don't embarrass them when they don't perform to your need to see them to perform at your level of need. You have some expectation, some need in you to see them perform at a certain level that will gratify your own need? Better take a look at that because they're not there to satisfy your need. Don't be abusive. If you use physical discipline, why and when and are you overdoing it? Don't just blurt out scripture from Proverbs as your defense unless you have fully studied those texts and understand them. 
Or are you overdoing any other form of discipline? Are you in this to make disciples or to act punitively? This is the first place we have for disciple making is the home. Don't yell or do it very rarely. Get out of the road kind of thing is okay. Or occasionally, you know, and we all do it. And it, it tends to stop our kids dead in their tracks. And maybe at times there's a place for that, but probably not as often as we might like to think it is. Tenderness. Do you show tenderness? Play with them. Wrestle with them. Boys and girls like that physical contact with dad. They need it. And if you fail them in some area, tell them you failed. Tell them how you failed and tell them how you're going to try better next time. And then ask them to forgive. For in so doing, you're mentoring them. You're setting the example of discipleship. Don't play favorites. Kids pick up on this. Look at the story of Jacob. Joseph was a favorite. And there are many things that led to all that catastrophic failure, right, of family. But Joseph was a favorite, and your brother brothers knew it, and they resented it. And there's other, plenty of good examples in Scripture. I don't want to pick on our deceased brethren of how they failed to raise their, their children in the right way, because we all do fail in some measure. But they're there. Don't be indifferent or uninterested. Just sort of being present isn't enough. Be interested in their stuff. Why? So that they don't become discouraged. So that they don't be provoked to anger. So that, so that their emotional state isn't made shipwreck. So that they don't think, I can never please this guy. They don't even know how to articulate that, right? They just, psychologically, their psyche gets deeply damaged by that. And it's interesting that the text here does not address parents. It addresses fathers. And it could address parents because he just used parents in the prior verse. Where he said, children, obey your parents. It doesn't say parents. It doesn't say parents don't, don't frustrate your children. It says fathers. Now, it applies to some extent in the same way to mothers, but inasmuch as dad is the head of the family, Paul is addressing fathers. Because, again, they're the spiritual leaders and the number one sort of in, in, in that authority sort of in the home. In a sense, they're pastors of that little community. So just wrapping it up here. <clears throat> Interesting thought by an old... Saint, it's as if the apostle was led to emphasize holiness at home as not only beautiful and right in itself, but the true nursery of habits of holiness everywhere. And it is the undertaking of the gospel that this domestic world should be a scene of pure love, happiness, and right. What is the method for the realization? It is just this, that on each party is pressed home its own duties and the other's rights. Our family life is evangelical. As detailed here under the Lordship of Christ, our family life is evangelical. Our family life says something about our submission to Christ and hence the impact of the gospel. Individually and together as a family unit. The redeemed family is the image of God. The happy land of the Trinity is on display in the happy land of the family. God the Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven and earth, making peace by the blood of His cross. The Lord Jesus accomplished this by the power of the Holy Spirit who rejoiced in His work. The relational joy between the three persons of God, the Father and Son and the Spirit that has always existed way before creation has been put on display through the work of redemption carried out by those three persons. They exposed their joy to us. 
and their love for one another in the work of redemption. And that same relationship, that relationship joy has been gifted to us, His new covenant people. And we have the blessing of imaging the Godhead in the way we relate to each other as husband, wife, and children, the family of God. So let our testimony to the world be thus. Wife, you are the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh, and I love you as my own body. Husband, I respect and submit to you as unto the Lord. Dad, I do always those things that please you. Child, you are my son or you are my daughter. With you I am well pleased. May the Lord who is faithful bring it to pass. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us again. We thank you for the blessing of family and the work that you